This is The Guardian. Today, how an inquiry into the COVID pandemic became a fight over Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's not that well appreciated outside Westminster, but over the past few years, there's been a massive shift in the way that the government operates. And actually, it mirrors a shift in our own lives. So I've not been in Westminster for very long, maybe three, four or five years maximum. But in that time, I think the shift towards people using instant messaging and WhatsApp has been huge. Aubrey Allegretti is a senior political correspondent with The Guardian. Initially, you would still have called or texted an MP, but COVID really, I think, put the sort of rocket underneath it because you couldn't speak to anyone in person anymore. And so you had to rely on quicker forms of digital communication to relay quotes or thoughts instantly. And all this information is sort of blasted from one phone to another or potentially to a group so quickly that it means that that information can sometimes get out of control and nobody can keep a handle on it. This technological shift makes it easier for the government to operate. But it has another side. It has potential to give the public an almost real-time insight into how some of the most consequential decisions governing our lives are being made. The kinds of insights that might be useful for an independent inquiry that's about to start holding public hearings, looking at how the government handled COVID-19, an event where decisions were literally the difference between life and death for thousands of people, and where understanding why some of those decisions were made could save thousands of lives in the next pandemic. But last week, the government announced it was taking the unprecedented step of launching a judicial review against that COVID inquiry to try to make sure MPs get to decide which WhatsApp messages the inquiry gets to see and which ones it doesn't. So the battle is heading to the courts. It is, from Rishi Sunak, a heading for a showdown and not a climb down. They keep talking about transparency and helping out and, you know, wanting to learn from their mistakes and everything else, but... Why has it had to go this far again to get these WhatsApp messages? These messages might tell us not just why key decisions were made, but the mindset of the people making them, who was influencing them, what they were distracted by. They could give this inquiry, and if a precedent is set, future ones too, Potentially the deepest look into how the government really operates that we've ever been able to see. And that might precisely be the problem. 
From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, what the government talks about in the group chat and why they don't want us to know about it. Aubrey, this story has become a political circus, and I think we can forget what lies at the heart of it, which is an inquiry into the government's handling of one of the most consequential events of our time, the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell me about that inquiry. Well, the inquiry is really looking into one of the most devastating periods in most people's lives. I mean, no one was untouched, and our freedoms and health were essentially at the whims of politicians and their advisers. And even though we're pretty much out the other side now, scientists acknowledge that it might not be another century before such a virus emerges again. So this inquiry is designed really to look at the major decisions and make recommendations about how we as a country could respond better next time. Amid such tragedy, the state has an obligation to examine its actions as rigorously and as candidly as possible and to learn every lesson for the future which is why I've always said that when the time is right, there should be a full and independent inquiry. It was set up by Boris Johnson and the first preliminary hearing started last October. We've got more or less evidence sessions commencing on the 13th of June, but inquiries take a lot of time and things like the Bloody Sunday inquiry and the Chilcot inquiry dragged on for more than a decade. There are some people that want it done as quickly as possible, but... There's a trade-off, really, between the speed of the inquiry and the depth of its investigations. The person overseeing the inquiry is an eminent former High Court judge, Lady Hallett, and she opened the first preliminary hearings last October. Those who were bereaved lost the most. They lost loved ones and the ability to mourn properly. It is therefore right that we begin this first hearing with a minute's silence for those who died. So with those of you who are able to do so, please stand for a minute's silence. What are the powers that she's going to have to get to the bottom of an issue that's so complicated and represents so much tragedy to so many people? So Baroness Hallett will have powers to essentially demand witnesses appear in front of her, collect all sorts of evidence, and that includes lots of government material that we otherwise normally wouldn't see. There is what's called the 30-year rule, which means that government documents, letters, exchanges between ministers normally is shielded from public eyes and we don't get to see it. And that's meant to protect the privacy of decision making and allow ministers to be a bit more open minded, weighing up the pros and cons of things without the sort of daylight and the political pressure of everyday politics. So she has the power to request all of this evidence, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she will publish it straight away. She just has the powers to ask for it. Hmm. So this inquiry has been the subject of a lot of political controversy over the past week. Can you take me through how that's played out? Absolutely. I mean, the row here has been really quite extraordinary. A familiar sight and a familiar predicament for the former Prime Minister. Boris Johnson's in the middle of a row between the government and the official COVID inquiry he set up. And it started, first of all, with the Cabinet Office being asked by Baroness Hallett to hand over all of these documents, which pertain to Boris Johnson's WhatsApps and also around half a dozen notebooks that he kept while he was Prime Minister. And she's threatening to sue the government if it doesn't comply. And the Cabinet Office spent some time pushing back against this and saying to 
the inquiry chair that she didn't have the powers to ask for the information that she did because it had already gone through the documents and decided what was and wasn't relevant and it was allowed to keep hold of the stuff that it decided wasn't relevant. The government has cooperated with the inquiry. Tens of thousands of documents have been handed over. And with regard to the specific question at the moment, the government's carefully considering its position, but it's confident in the approach that it's taken. I think the Prime Minister looks really slippery today. He says he wants the government to cooperate with the inquiry, but the government has been withholding information the inquiry's asked for. Then, minutes apparently before the deadline for handing that information over, the Cabinet Office went back to the inquiry and then declared instead that actually it didn't have some of this information. Boris Johnson and his office were in possession of the information, not them, meaning they then couldn't comply with the request. So Baroness Hallett was having none of this. She sort of wrote back. You could almost feel the anger in the letter. And she essentially said, well, I'm going to demand then that you explain to me what you had, when, why you decided it wasn't relevant, who you gave it back to, all of those kind of embarrassing details. And I want whatever you have got. And that deadline was 4pm on Thursday. Well, that's it. The deadline has now been and gone and officials in the Cabinet Office behind me are still sitting on reams of unredacted material the inquiry wants to see. Both sides say they're in the right... Then the rug was slightly pulled from underneath the government's feet because while it then took this momentous decision to launch a judicial review, essentially prolonging the wait further, Boris Johnson decided that he would hand over all the information anyway to the inquiry... For the first time in his colourful political career, Boris Johnson has set a metaphorical cat amongst the pigeons. He has put the government of his successor, Rishi Sunak, in a mighty awkward spot by handing all the unedited WhatsApp messages and notebooks requested by the COVID inquiry to the Cabinet Office. So now the inquiry is in receipt of it. So there are wider issues at play here that are going through the courts. Aubrey, this is an inquiry to figure out why so many people died in the last pandemic and how to stop that happening in the next pandemic. So why is the government afraid of giving the inquiry all the tools, all the information that it might need to do its job? Well, I think this is where the story actually gets really interesting. Essentially, what this is a battle over is whether or not other ministers are going to be forced to hand over their own WhatsApp. So if a precedent is set by Boris Johnson being forced to hand over his via the Cabinet Office, then other ministers will have to do the same, potentially. And Boris Johnson has almost nothing to lose anymore. Boris Johnson has been reported to two police forces over fresh claims that he broke lockdown rules when he was Prime Minister. He's been sort of thrown out on his ear, disgraced in the aftermath of Partygate, and other ministers who are still serving in the government, for example, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, they potentially have a lot more to lose. There might be much more politically sensitive and embarrassing material about them or about other people that they've exchanged messages about on their phone. So that is why the government is going to such extreme lengths. Okay, so 
what they're really concerned about is that potentially they might have to give up all of their WhatsApp messages to this inquiry or some future inquiry. If those messages are handed over, do we, the public, get to see them? Not necessarily. I mean, that I think is almost lost in this whole debate. What's essentially at stake here is whether or not the inquiry can demand to see this evidence for themselves. But we don't think that much of this is ever going to be published. I think the Cabinet Office said that there were 20 million documents that it had in its possession relating to COVID. So there's a huge trove. There's no way we're ever going to see all of those. Ministers are obviously worried about lots of their personal WhatsApps being handed to the inquiry. That doesn't mean that those personal WhatsApps or details are ever going to see the light of day. Hmm. All of this raises the question of how apps like WhatsApp are used by, by people in the government. So how pervasive is WhatsApp? What kinds of decisions are people talking about on the group chat? I think Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages demonstrated the extent to which it is totally embedded in government decision-making, this use of WhatsApp and instant messaging. A scramble to save his reputation and an acknowledgement that government policy was helping spread the virus. Just some of the latest revelations in the WhatsApp leaks of the former health secretary at the height of the pandemic. Other messages appear to show Matt Hancock and Gavin Williamson discussing teachers' access to PPE. Sir Gavin said some will just want to say they can't, so they have an excuse to avoid having to teach. Obviously, official decisions are normally made in the proper way, face-to-face, by cabinet ministers, with their advisers and officials around them. I remember in one instance, Matt Hancock was being lobbied by a health minister who wanted to expand the rule of six, which meant that only six people could sort of meet together at any one time. And the health minister wanted to ensure that children weren't included to be able for more families to be able to sort of meet up together. And that was how WhatsApp was being used during the pandemic. And if it hadn't been for the big leak of Matt Hancock's messages, then we arguably would never have known about the sort of granular detail like that. Most of the WhatsApp messages are about coffee and who needs to have what kind of coffee for what kind of meeting. You see, most of this is about frothy material, not about meaningful decision-making. There's no way that big decisions were taken over WhatsApp. That was the claim made by people. So, on the one hand, we have people close to the government saying there isn't much to see in these messages. But then we have the leaked messages of Matt Hancock, which seem to suggest otherwise. It seems that over the years, we've witnessed this huge change in the way that the government talks to itself. And I'm wondering, what are the consequences of so much government business apparently being done over WhatsApp or Telegram or Signal? How is it changing the way people work, the way that policy is made? The consequences of doing that kind of work over WhatsApp, I suppose, are that things can get done much more quickly and effectively. MPs don't need to be sat in the chamber not able to respond for several hours because they're in a six-hour debate, but they can get quite a lot of work done quickly. It also means that information can be shared a lot quicker. So if a minister wants to put something out there, if the government's about to reverse ferret or U-turn or ministers are in the process of receiving instructions from Number 10 to announce something like that at the dispatch box, it can happen much more quickly and swiftly. But it does also mean that lots more people have potential access to their colleagues' phones and information on them. MPs are in endless amounts of WhatsApp group chats. There's ones for 
the whole of their parties. There's ones for factional sort of groups like the Common Sense Group or the European Research Group or the COVID Recovery Group, all of those things. So colleagues can sort of fire their thoughts into the ether and then suddenly they get pinged to 40, 50, even hundreds of their colleagues at once, which is ripe, of course, for leaks to journalists like us. I wonder, does it also allow them to hide things that in the past would have had to have been communicated in meetings where there would have been a record in the form of minutes, can now happen over WhatsApp, over another app, and the public never has a chance of finding out about it? I think this is a good example of how antiquated the sort of current systems for monitoring what MPs do and say is, because these are forums that extend well beyond the reach of normal monitoring and the ability for departments to look at what their ministers are saying. WhatsApp, I think, has some interesting parallels in terms of this sort of stuff that might be requested by the inquiry with freedom of information laws. There used to be some quite sort of blurred lines between the personal and the professional. People would use their potentially personal phone to discuss work business or even their professional phone to discuss personal business because of the sort of intermingled way that those things happen in Westminster. But there were FOI rulings which essentially set the precedent for people's personal devices being able to be subject to freedom of information requests so long as the messages that they were exchanging pertain to government or professional business. And so if the government loses this fight, if WhatsApp messages are suddenly fair game, whatever the people involved are discussing, how do you think that might change the way people in government use WhatsApp or similar apps? It's a great question. And I think the extent to which people are already changing their habits with WhatsApp is a live one because Matt Hancock essentially got the ball rolling on this a few months ago by passing over all of his messages so the ones that he sent and received, groups and individual threads, to the journalist Isabel Oakeshott, who then decided to publish them without his consent. And I think that sort of sent a a bit of a shiver up the spine of a lot of MPs who previously hadn't given much thought to the consequence of firing off WhatsApp messages and the implications of talking about quite sensitive information over them, not realising that in several years' time all of this might come back to bite them. So that conversation is quite live. I think MPs are certainly starting to become more mindful about the things that they commit to WhatsApp. And in fact, increasingly, you're getting MPs and advisors turn on disappearing messages so that essentially records aren't going to be captured of messages that are exchanged and they won't be held on anyone's device for longer than seven days, which adds a sort of interesting dynamic given the COVID inquiry won't be able to, for example, look back at messages on devices that have disappearing messages turned on. Coming up, Boris Johnson offers to give up all his text messages. Is it in the interests of transparency or is there more going on? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. So, Aubrey, there was a twist to this story late last week when Boris Johnson wrote to the commissioner saying, in fact, he would be happy to give up his messages after the Cabinet Office had spent the week trying to avoid doing just that. What do you think Boris is playing at here? So I think the the official explanation from Boris Johnson will be that he, he wants to be seen to be cooperating with the inquiry and he doesn't see any reason why he can't hand over these messages, so... If the cabinet office is holding it up, he might as well cut out the middleman and go direct. But what can't be ignored is the context here. And the previous week, the cabinet office had handed over all of his diaries, which it had been scrutinising because they were giving him legal support for the COVID inquiry, and gave those diaries to the police because officials were worried that they contained potential evidence of further partygate allegations. So he has been absolutely furious and I think it would be remiss to ignore that and the the sort of fury that's been levied by him at Rishi Sunak and the ministers in the Cabinet Office. And in essence, he's been trying to pull the rug out from under their feet by saying, I don't want you to get away with holding all this stuff up. I want to be able to pass this stuff to the COVID inquiry directly. It certainly makes it much harder for Rishi Sunak to then appear, look like he's involved in some kind of cover-up whereas Boris Johnson can contrast that and say, I'm being incredibly open. This is a sort of rare example of Boris Johnson running towards an issue rather than away from it. Yeah, I mean, it, Boris Johnson is being transparent, albeit for the purposes of revenge. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. And I'm sure his team wouldn't put it as bluntly as that. But I think certainly allies of Boris Johnson blame Rishi Sunak for his downfall. They think that Rishi was agitating in the months leading up to Boris Johnson's demise, that there was always some sort of ulterior motive on the former Chancellor's mind. And they're more than happy to make life difficult for him, covertly, not overtly, by 
contrasting Boris Johnson as somebody who's just trying to be incredibly helpful to the COVID inquiry with Rishi Sunak, who it appears is trying to obstruct their work and essentially fuel allegations of a cover-up. So, Aubrey, we've got a legal challenge on the part of the government, doing everything they can to prevent themselves from having to hand these messages to the inquiry. How will that challenge play out? So the government realises that it has to act quite quickly here. It's taken the unprecedented decision to launch legal proceedings, trying to block the COVID inquiry chair from getting all the documents that she wants, knowing that time is being wasted and lots of more public money is being spent on lawyers wrangling over this issue. So it is in a hurry. Now, I was speaking to Jonathan Jones, who's the former head of the government legal department, and he expects that this case could be wrapped up in a matter of weeks. That's certainly the government's ambition as well, but it does want to stress that the timing isn't in its gift. It's very much for the High Court. So we could see this issue resolved by the end of June, but meanwhile, we'll have seen the first public hearing start for the COVID inquiry, and yet again, it will just be sort of bogged down in even more process and people will look at it and presumably start to lose faith even more in its ability to get to the bottom of the truth as quickly as possible. Hmm. Does the government think they have any chance of winning that case? Legal experts say that very much the government's got a mountain to climb here because the public inquiries, terms of reference and remit are so broad and judges might very well say, well, why are you arguing with the inquiry's remit and powers when you, the government, were responsible for setting up the inquiry and could agree the terms of reference for it as well? So I think there might be short shrift given to the argument that the government thinks that Baroness Hallett is going well beyond her remit and exercising powers that she doesn't have, given how recently these things were decided and agreed by the government. Aubrey, the first full hearings of this inquiry start next Tuesday. How do we expect that they're going to unfold? So the inquiry is split into several parts. And actually, the first major section that it will begin its public evidence sessions on is all about the build-up to the pandemic, the preparedness. Did we have enough stocks of PPE in the run-up to it? How, for example, did Tory austerity contribute to the degree to which the country was unprepared and the extent of workforce issues in the NHS. Those are the sorts of issues that are going to be under the microscope during the first part of the inquiry. We're expecting to hear from people like Jeremy Hunt, who was, of course, the health secretary for so long under David Cameron, and George Osborne, the former chancellor as well. So we're going to hear a lot about the years leading up to COVID well in advance of hearing anything about what actually happened during the pandemic. I mean, given how long this inquiry is going to take, we've been told not to expect a report until 2026 at the earliest. Isn't it a bit unseemly that in the middle of an investigation into this tragedy, this series of hundreds of thousands of tragedies across the UK, we're already getting bogged down in politicians appearing to try to protect their reputations rather than doing everything they can to make sure that when another pandemic emerges, we're as ready as we can be. 
So it's probably not unexpected that politicians might seek to cover their back, but they do know that ultimately the public good in this lies in being completely transparent. I thought what was really interesting was I spoke to a former SAGE advisor, so somebody who was advising the government during the pandemic, who said that they found Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages really valuable because they revealed attitudes that they had suspected but couldn't prove, for example, sticking to an incorrect policy because it wouldn't look good to change it. And so this SAGE advisor was saying the more unguarded messages are actually a lot more valuable than the lawyer-mediated material which would otherwise arise. And I think that speaks to the extent to which people feel politicians might want to sort of cover their own back, but revealing contemporaneous evidence is crystal clear. It's black and white. You can't get away from what was said when. And it means that you can't, in several years' time, have the recollections may vary excuse from politicians. But the thing I wonder is, you know, beyond these questions of process, of precedent, I mean, what does this look like to people who lost loved ones in the pandemic to see politicians more concerned about their reputations than getting to the bottom of why this happened and how to stop it from happening again? My daughter was dead while they were doing their parties and I will never, never, ever forgive the government for doing that. Never in my life. And all those people who say people need to move on, how can we move on when we're in hell every minute of our lives because we lost our daughter when we could have got there? It's just wicked. They're trivial, trivial blathering about his privacy. Who cares about his privacy at all? It's not. I think people who lost loved ones during the pandemic probably already had fairly low expectations for the inquiry and hopes that politicians would comply with it and that it would give them the sort of closure and answers that they wanted and probably deserved. So I'm not sure how much more they're going to be disappointed by the current wrangling, but it does paint a pretty sort of bleak picture of a government that was ill-equipped, unprepared, potentially didn't have all the right people in the right places. You remember there was so much toing and froing over whether or not Boris Johnson had been trying to sack Matt Hancock, who held that pivotal role as health secretary. So I think all of this is, is not going to ultimately comfort those families that wanted answers and were looking to the inquiry to provide them. That was Aubrey Allegretti, a senior political correspondent with The Guardian whose coverage of the COVID inquiry and its political fallout you can find at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Rose DeLarabiti and Alex Atak. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.